Well, our sermon this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke. We'll be in chapter 8, beginning in verse 4. Luke chapter 8, verse 4, you'll find that on page 865 in the Pew Bible in front of you. I look forward to spending some time in God's Word with you this morning. I do want to thank uh, many of you for uh, your gracious prayers for me and my four little ones as we uh, backpack through the mountains of Vermont this week in a glorious time. I simply want to testify to you that God's handiwork is majestic and that God is powerful and wonderful and we had a, a great time of restoration and memories and I'm so thankful for those opportunities and I'm thankful for your prayers. So Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 4. Hear now the word of God. When a great crowd was gathering and the people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, A sower went to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, And thorns grew up with it and choked it, and some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see. And hearing, they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The the ones along the path are those who have heard. The devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in a time of testing fall away. And as for those, for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Our Father, we're thankful now for your word in which we can set our hearts upon. We're thankful for this opportunity to consider how it is we might hear your word and we might listen to it and respond to it. We're thankful that this parable that our Lord has given um, deals with everyone in this room. And we all may find ourselves in it and is therefore a great help and aid to us today that we may examine our own lives even before we come to this supper meal, this Lord's Supper that we might examine our hearts and see how it is that we are hearing. And so we ask that you would help us even now by your Spirit. Our Christ has said, He who has ears, let him hear. Will you please not in your favor and kindness and grace to us give us those ears that we might hear even now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Some time ago, Gaylord Kamarami the General Secretary of the Bible Society of Zimbabwe, offered a man a New Testament. The man responded to him, 
if you give me that Bible, I'll tear out the pages, roll them up, and use them to make cigarettes. So Gaylord thought about that for a moment, and then he replied, I'll give you the Bible, and you may smoke it, at least, at, if you only promise that you'll read every page before you do so. And so the man agreed, and gave him the New Testament, and went on his way. Fifteen years later, this memory far removed from Gaylord's life, he happened to be attending a convention when the speaker on the platform suddenly spotted him in the audience and said, this man doesn't remember me, but 15 years ago he gave me the New Testament, even though I told him I would use the pages to roll cigarettes. He made me promise to read the pages before I smoked them. Well, I smoked Matthew. <laughs> And I smoked Mark, and I smoked Luke. But when I got to John 3.16, I couldn't smoke anymore. My life was changed from that moment. Such is the power of the Word of God. It transforms us. It produces faith in our lives. It invites us into the kingdom of God, this man who has now a full-time evangelist in Zimbabwe. Jesus here is speaking of the power of that word. In fact, you notice Luke tells us often that Jesus is going about proclaiming the kingdom of God. You see that in verse 10. This, this parable in which he's about to tell us is about the kingdom. He says here, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. Or you'll note in verse 1, Soon afterwards he went on through the cities and villages proclaiming and bringing, uh, bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. I think it's important for you to recognize that Jesus didn't go around proclaiming forgiveness. Or proclaiming mercy or grace. Though he did, of course, bring that and offers that to all who would receive it. But he went around preaching the kingdom of God. Now, without forgiveness, we are without hope, certainly. But Jesus is doing more than dealing with sin. He is inviting us to come under God's rule. He's inviting us to enter into God's kingdom. God's kingdom has been defined, I think, helpfully as God's people in God's place under God's rule. And Jesus has come to bring that rule to this earth. And, and, and many people, of course all people, have rejected God as king in their hearts and have gone their own way and have left his kingdom, which is why this world is in the state that it is. And why there is so much war and conflict and hurt and greed and sadness and suffering and even death and disorder between races and nations and within families because we have rebelled against God and the world therefore has come unraveled. Life has come unraveled and Jesus, the Son of God, has shown up upon the earth and He is declaring, He is creating a new kingdom that submits to Him as King. He's brought the kingdom of God and all who will enter into it will begin to realize that it's there under God's rule that life begins to flourish. The greedy become selfless. The those filled with shame become filled with love. The bitter become forgiving. He's come to bring that. Of course, there's just a taste here today. One day he'll come again and bring it in fullness and power in every aspect of our life. But this is what Christ has come. He's come to bring the kingdom. Of course, that raises the question, how is it that we enter this kingdom of God? Well, interestingly enough, we enter the kingdom of God unlike any other kingdom. We enter it by hearing. It's unusual. All other kingdoms work by coercion. They all work by force. 
Of course, the kingdom in which Christ was living in in this day was the kingdom of Rome. And everybody knew that Rome uh, was the kingdom, and that Rome was the kingdom by the, the power of the sword, by the force. But even democracy works through coercion and force, when the 51% will decide for the 49%. I mean, we even see that coercion taking place uh, in, our, in our very day in Kentucky. There is force in all these kingdoms, and yet the kingdom of God doesn't come by force. It comes by listening. It comes by hearing, which is why I believe Jesus repeatedly, as you see in verse 1, calls it the good news of the kingdom. You see that there? The good news of the, or the gospel of the kingdom. Of course, gospel just meaning good news. Jesus doesn't come and say, I brought the good advice of the kingdom or the good instruction of the kingdom or the good philosophy of the kingdom, but he calls, he calls it the good news of the kingdom. Now, my friends, how is it that you receive good news? You listen to it. You hear it. You, you hear the news. Every other world religion brings good advice, good instruction, good philosophy. Every world religion says, this is what you must do. This is how you must act. These are the rituals in which you must perform. And, and in doing so, you might reach up to God. And Christ says, I haven't come to bring advice. I've come to bring news, good news that God has reached down to you. And we receive that good news. We receive that kingdom by receiving the news in which he has given, by listening to it, by hearing it, by embracing it, which is, I I believe, is why Jesus says in verse 18, you see this here? Take care then how you hear. Be careful how you listen. Take heed how you hear. In fact, that's not the only place he says that in verse, in chapter 8. You notice verse 8, as I've already pointed out, he declares, he who has ears, let him hear. And again, in verse 10, he says, hearing, they may not understand. Verse 12, he says, those who hear. Verse 13, those who hear. Verse 14, those who hear. Verse 15, those who hear. Even all the way in verse 21, when he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God. And do it. Be careful how you hear. This is what Jesus is after. And this parable that he gives us is really a test as to how you're hearing the word of God. How is it that you are listening to the word of God himself? How have you truly heard him? Have you truly responded to him? And he lays out four different ways of hearing the word of God. Now, by the way, these four different ways, these four different types of people are, it's not, you know, we're one type and the people sleeping in this morning are another type. All these people are people who come and sit under the teaching of the word of God. So you find yourself in this parable. You are here. This is only for those who hear the word of God proclaimed, which is happening this very moment. And so you are here. So therefore, it's incredibly helpful. This, this concerns you. Your heart is in this story. And so I invite you as we work our way through it to find yourself in it. But before we do, I think we should tackle the issue of why Jesus speaks in parables. He, he's, he's, in fact, look in verse 4. You, you notice a great crowd was gathering, right? And they're coming from where? From town after town. And so Jesus is accumulating this great crowd. Of course, you know, Jesus begins his ministry in Judea. John gets arrested, and so he retreats up to the north, the rural north in Galilee. And there he begins his ministry. We call that the Galilean springtime. That's where we are in Luke's gospel. We'll be there until we get to Luke 9, verse 51. And it's in the Galilean springtime that Jesus' ministry begins to explode. And it's only after that time that it begins to dwindle. 
So it's at this point that Jesus' ministry almost reaches climax. He'll probably reach it in chapter 9 when he feeds the 5,000. But you notice a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town are coming to him. The other gospels tell us there's so many people that Jesus had to get out in a boat to begin to teach what he's about to teach. But he gathers this crowd and he tells them a story about seed and soil. In fact, with no explanation. The explanation only comes privately to the disciples. In my mind, it's incredibly strange. I mean, could you imagine, if, for instance, if, if you know, by some work of God, I, I begin to, to walk to D.C. And, and people from Hamilton begin to follow, and, and, and then Leesburg and, and Sterling. And, and by the time I get to D.C., there is this great, massive crowd, and I stand up to speak to them. And I say, a man once moved to D.C. and looked for a job. He thought about being a government contractor. But then he realized with the sequester and the government shutdown and all that, that wouldn't be good. And so then he considered working for a nonprofit. But then he realized that donations are tight and fickle, so I won't do that. And then he said, maybe I'll run for office. But then he thought about the compromises and the pressure and Donald Trump and, and all that. <laughs> and then he said, finally, I know, I'll become a government bureaucrat. And he found the job of his dreams. Let he who has ears hear. And then I walk away. <laughs> Isn't, I mean, that would be very strange, wouldn't it? But that's precisely what Christ is doing. He comes and speaks in a parable. He tells a story about soil and seed with no explanation and then calls for people to listen to him. Of course, he's trying to prove a point, isn't he? But why prove it through a parable? Why not just say the point? And by the way, I hope you like parables uh, because this is the fourth in Luke's gospel, the fourth of 27. And so Jesus in the Galilean ministry is going to be heavily involved in miracles in his travel narratives beginning in Luke 9.52. It's the miracles will diminish and the parables will begin to flourish. And so why speak in parables? Well, Jesus actually tells us the answer in this parable. In verse 9, his disciples asked him what the parable meant. And he'll tell them what the parable meant. But before he does so, he's going to tell them why it is he speaks in parables in verse 10, saying, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. You see, there are two reasons why Jesus speaks in parables, and they both pertain to two different groups of people. There's one group that he speaks in parables, those who believe, right? To you, he says, to the disciples, you who understand and are gaining the grasp of who I am, I speak in parables. Why? Because you have been given the secrets of the kingdom of God. Some translations say the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Now, when the Bible talks about mystery, it, it's usually referring to something in the Old Testament that was concealed. And now through, uh, through Christ in the New Testament is revealed. And so Jesus says to the, his disciples, you've been told the secret. You've been given the mysteries of the kingdom of God. And there, in other words, God has enabled you to understand these truths. God has given you these mysteries that you might know who I am. You, you wonder why it is that the disciples follow Jesus and so many others turn their back upon him. 
Well, it's precisely because of what God was doing in their life, what God was giving them, that he was giving them the mysteries of God. And we see this very clearly when Peter confesses Christ. Remember, Jesus comes to Peter and says, Simon, who do, who do you say that I am? And, and Peter says, well, you, are, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus responds to him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. You see, Simon was given that secret. He was given the secrets of the kingdom of God. That's why you, my brothers and sisters, delight in Christ. That's why you're drawn to the cross. Why you, you come to this table with anticipation and eagerness. Because you too, God has worked in your life. The reason that you are drawn to Christ is not because you are smarter than other, those who reject him. It's not because you are better or more moral. It's because what God has done in your life to you, it has been given. And so Christ speaks in parables for them to help them understand these truths, that they might know more truth. If you look down in verse 18, I think this is what he's referring to here when he says, for the one who has, more will be given. Those who believe, more truth will come to them, more revelation, more fullness. But now look up in verse 10. There's another reason he speaks in parables, not simply to give more truth to those who believe. But you see at the end of verse 10, he says, but for others who are... They are in parables. Why? So that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. You see, for those who don't believe in Christ, the parables are given to conceal truth as an act of judgment on their disbelief. In fact, he quotes from Isaiah. Craig read for us just a moment ago. And God calls Isaiah to preach. And he says, Isaiah, when you go out and preach, you know, two things are going to happen. Some are going to hear uh, your, your preaching and they're going to repent and they're going to come to me in faith. But many, many other people are going to become more hardened the more you preach. They're going to resist me more and more the more you preach. And what Jesus is saying is that I speak in parables as a form of judgment on those who, despite all the evidence before them, continue to refuse to believe me. So he has worked this, these many months showing his power, fulfilling prophecy, showing his love and grace, and still others, still many will refuse to, to come to him. And it's at this point that he begins to speak in parables as an act of judgment upon them. In other words, parables are a filter. In mercy, he reveals truth to those who believe. In judgment, he conceals truth, hardens those who don't, which is why I think we should heed. Verse 18, take care then how you hear. The, the point of this parable is that for some, it's going to be an act of judgment. They're going to grow harder. For some, it's going to be a revelation of truth to them. Take care how you hear. My brothers and sisters in Christ, I believe very much that God has called me to preach his word. But I believe equally that he has called you to hear his word. I believe that is a calling upon your life. Let him who has ears hear. Take care how you hear. In fact, this is what this parable is about, isn't it? As we see in verse 5, a sower went out to sow his seed. What does that mean? Verse 11. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. So the man goes out and he has a bag of seed tied by his waist and he begins to cast seed in his field and the seed falls upon four different soils. The seed being the word of God, the message of salvation that God receives sinners through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the good news of the kingdom of God and there are four ways to respond to the word of God. Four different soils all respond differently. Only one responds appropriately. I invite you as we consider this parable to examine your own hearts and to find yourself in it. 
Jesus begins by saying, beware of listening with a hard heart. The first soil could represent he who listens or she who listens with a hard heart. As you note, verse 5, as he sowed, some fell along the path and trampled and was trampled underfoot and the birds of the air devoured it. And so he tells that to the crowds, but he explains it privately to his disciples in verse 12. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And so the, the man that is walking through his fields and there's footpaths going through his fields, isn't, isn't there? And he, and he casts that seed and some of that seed falls upon those footpaths. And, and this represents, according to the Lord, those who hear the word of God and yet it makes no impact upon their heart at all. There's no penetration. There, there, there's, there's no depth in them that the word um, enters into them. There's no response. Maybe these are people who like to come and listen to the Word of God just because they, they like ancient texts or find Jesus an interesting historical figure. Maybe they just come just to, out of curiosity. Maybe these are explains the people that are maybe dragged here by their parents. Not interested in listening to God's Word, but here by force. Or maybe, maybe someone accompanying a spouse. And yet they do not want to receive the Word of God. There's no attraction or reflection. The heart is not moved. The conscience is not stirred. There's just indifference. There's just a whatever or that was interesting perhaps. You see, the problem according to the Lord is not the word. The problem is the heart. I would caution you, my friends today, to beware of listening to the word of God with your mind only. Beware of not engaging with God with your heart. Of course, there's an enemy involved in all of this. You note that in verse 12, that the devil comes and he takes away the word from their heart that they may not believe and be saved. See, the part of the trouble is that every time the word of God is preached, a battle is being waged. Even right now, in this very room, war is going on. An enemy is here. And as I teach, Jesus explains that there is an enemy who is trying to take that word from you. He is trying to snatch it away from you. And perhaps he does this by distracting you. Perhaps he does this by, by making it difficult for you to pay attention or giving you wandering thoughts. Or, or maybe he does this by causing you to be annoyed by another church member and all you're thinking about is that they were singing off key or, or the, the way they look. Or, or maybe he's even causing you to be annoyed at the preacher that his sermon is boring or hard to understand or he preaches too slowly. And whatever it might be that the, the devil might be working in your heart to, to cause you to be tired or exhausted. I remember when, when I was growing up, of course, I wasn't raised in the church, but whenever we would visit my grandparents in Fallbrook, California, every Sunday we would all go to church, my parents included. And I remember it was amazing within, within minutes, maybe even seconds of the service starting, a wave of exhaustion would just come upon me, right? And so, some of you may know exactly what I'm talking about right now, right? right? I wonder where that, where that comes from. Of course, I'm not the only one to wonder. J.C. Ryle wrote a couple hundred years ago, Beware the devil when we hear the word. Nowhere does he labor so hard to stop the progress of that which is good to prevent men and women from being saved. From him come wandering thoughts and roving imaginations, listless minds and dull memories, sleepy eyes and fidgety nerves, weary ears and distracted attention. People wonder where they come from and marvel how it is that they find the sermons so dull and remember them so badly. They forget the parable of the sower. They forget the devil. You see, it's not my sermons that are boring after all. <laughs> it's the enemy. 
convincing you that it is true. Joking aside, I want you to be aware we should be somewhat sober, shouldn't we, that there is an enemy. He never misses a Sunday. He is here every time we gather. And he is doing his best this very second, according to the word of God, to stop you from responding to his word. There is a war taking place. Be careful how you hear. My friends, has the word changed you? Has the word impacted you? Has it penetrated you? Do you know the truth of God personally? Has there ever been a time when it's just knocked the wind out of you or, or you saw Christ through his scripture and, and called out in your heart, I need him. I need him. Has the word ever gone into your heart? By the mercy of God, soften your heart to him today. Beware of listening with a hard heart. Secondly, beware of listening with a shallow heart. Verse 6. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. He explains in verse 13 what he means by saying, And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in a time of testing, they fall away. If the the story of the path represents those who hear with the intellect only, it seems to me those with a shallow heart represent those who listen with their emotions only. Now, Jesus talks about this shallow soil, this rocky soil. In Palestine, the many places, the soil is only two or three inches deep, and, and underneath there is a limestone bedrock, and the seed will fall upon the soil, and the, because it's shallow, it will warm quickly, and the, and the seed will, will, sh- uh, will shoot out and sprout out, and it give this great growth. looks promising, but the sun continues to beat down, and it dries out um, the, the, the ground, and the roots can't penetrate through the bedrock rock and the that which looks promising just withers and dies and jesus warns us of people who receive the word like that you notice there in verse 13 he says those who receive it with joy with enthusiasm their emotions are stirred at the word of god but it doesn't last because their commitment to him is just superficial it's shallow jesus says they fall away have you, have you experienced people like this? And perhaps you know people like this who, who come a, a to church and are, and are moved powerfully in their emotions and are broken in their heart or encouraged in their soul, and yet weeks later they're just gone, never to be seen again. They're, they're here today and gone tomorrow. And I think in this there's a great warning against uh, a tendency in American Christianity. If I could just put a footnote in this sermon... I think we need to beware of easy, easy believism. I, I think in our efforts to get people to receive Christ, we, we make committing to Jesus as quick and easy as we possibly can. Right? And we, we dim the lights and we play the music and we, and we, we, we strum the chords and we beg and invite and we're just trying to get people to come down and then we put it out on our church marquees. How many people were saved today? And, and I, I praise the Lord that God works through those means. He certainly does. Many people have been saved by those. But there is, I think, a warning here to beware of giving people false assurance. I think time is a great clarifier to one's commitment to Christ, that we can have an emotional response to him which is not true or authentic. I appreciate George Whitfield, who was used by God to bring about the great awakening in America in the mid-19th centuries. He would preach to thousands. He would preach six sermons a day. 
In fact, he would uh, often preach a great, you want to study someone great, he would preach and then he would go lie on his couch and cough up blood because, of course, he had no um, amplification. He would preach to 10,000 people six, seven times a day, seven days a week. This man mightily used by God and people would come to him and they would say to this evangelist, how many people were saved? And he would say, we'll see in a few years. And it's not to say that you earn your salvation. No, that wasn't Whitfield's theology. It is to say that, yes, people's emotions are stirred and people are initially drawn to Christ, but, the, but time will clarify the genuineness of that conviction. It will tell us through their perseverance. I think it's important to seek a balance there. I think it, that's a hard balance to reach. I have no doubt about that. To invite people to express the urgency of coming to Christ and yet at the same time not lead to false assurance. And Jesus, I think, is warning us, or at least cautioning us here. In fact, the reason why these people fall away, you notice verse 13, he says, because they have no root. So they're exposed when the drought comes, aren't they? Their superficial commitment to Christ is, is exposed when what Jesus calls a time of testing. People, I think, are excited about Jesus, and they think, well, Jesus has changed my life, and I'm all about Jesus. And then when trouble comes, and they think, wait a second, I thought once you're with Jesus, things don't, you don't have these problems anymore. I thought things were supposed to be good. These are Jesus' fair-weather fans, if you will. They, things get difficult, and they walk away. In fact, it was really never about entering Jesus' kingdom. It was always about Jesus entering their kingdom. You know, what they've always wanted from Jesus is a blesser, not a savior. They, they want a butler, not a lord. They, they want a genie and not a king. And what good is a genie if he's no longer granting wishes? And so they walk away from him. You know, some people are suffering and they think Jesus is their solution. That will never last. It's only those who recognize they're sinners and Jesus is the savior. That will come to him. And these times of testing reveal that. I would warn you, therefore, my friends, to beware of basing your faith on emotions. Which, of course, is not to say that emotions are bad. Every week I pray and attempt the best I can to not only inform your mind, but to engage your heart. But if all it is is based upon emotions, we are in dangerous territory. Again, J.C. Ryle said, let us not forget it is quite possible to feel great pleasure or deep alarm under the preaching of the gospel and yet be utterly destitute of the grace of God. The tears of some hearers of sermons and the extravagant delight of others are no certain marks of conversion. We may be warm admirers of our favorite preachers and yet nothing better than stony ground hearers. And so here, our Lord's warning, true conviction, true love for Jesus is not simply based upon emotional enthusiasm. It is based upon a commitment of your life to him, heart, soul, and mind. Thirdly, Jesus tells us to beware of listening with a distracted heart, a, we might say, a divided heart, as we look in verse 7. And some fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. He explains in verse 14 what he means by saying, And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. These are distracted hearers. These are preoccupied hearers. They hear the word, they're drawn to it in some degree, but they ultimately choose the world. The thorns, he says, represent the world, the cares and the pleasures of life. They grow up around them and they choke them out. I don't, I don't know if you keep a garden. We used to keep a garden. And it was amazing to me how, how much faster the weeds would grow than the things I actually planted. 
Right? We would send our kids out to get a tomato, and they would, by the time they picked it and turned around, would get lost amongst the, the weeds. Right? And you understand that. I and mean, if you let those weeds grow, what happens? They block the sunlight out, don't they? And they, they rob uh, that which you have planted from its nutrients, and, and it eventually chokes that plant out, and it dies. The weeds, according to our Lord, verse 14 says, are the riches and the pleasures of life that lure the soul away from Christ. And Jesus is going to, especially as we move on, even get to Luke chapter 9, is going to have some very strong words for us. In fact, in chapter 9, verse 23, he will say, if anyone is to come after me, he must, you know what? He must deny himself. He must take up his cross daily. And he must follow me. And there are people who are drawn to Jesus as long as he gives them their pleasures of life. But when he says, listen, you're going to have to deny yourself. In fact, if you want to find true pleasure, you have to. it is in denying yourself and finding it in me. And people say, you know, I'd rather have television. I'd rather have sex with my girlfriend. Thank you very much. I'd, I'd rather hold on to my money. I'd rather seek professional advance or educational excellence. And stuff begins to become more important than Jesus. I think this is what our society teaches us. It's okay if you're a Christian, but let's just not get carried away with it. Right? I mean, yes, follow Jesus, but it certainly shouldn't involve much of your money or much of your life. Certainly you shouldn't witness to other people. Certainly you shouldn't become a missionary or anything absurd like that. I think thousands of people begin to follow Jesus, tens of thousands of people, and and they start off and, and... and yet the allurement of this world becomes so powerful and it takes them away. I, I spent almost a decade in youth ministry and I saw it so many times. It breaks your heart because these, often these middle schoolers are just so on fire for Christ. And then as they grow and as the allurements become more powerful in their lives, slowly by slowly they, they turn their back upon Jesus and begin to pursue the world until there is no relationship with Christ at all. Of course, this is not just a warning to you teenagers. It's a warning to every one of us, isn't it? My friends of privilege here in Loudoun County, my friends who have great pleasures and riches compared to this world, beware that that which you, God has blessed you with has the power to choke out your hearts. And it will not do so all at once. It won't do so overnight. Right? Weeds don't choke out a plant suddenly. They do so slowly, almost unknowingly. But the heart soon becomes distracted and then it becomes divided and ultimately it is destroyed. So I wonder, what are you living for? Are you living for things? Are you living for the riches of life, the pleasures of life? Is that what you dream of? Is that what you pursue? Christ warns us, beware. Do not be so proud to think, well, that's not me. That couldn't be me. My friends, it can be. It can be me. It can be every one, any one of us. Beware of the allurement of this world that it might choke us out. Instead, Jesus invites us to listen with a responsive heart. There's one way to respond properly to the Word of God. We see him uh, introduce it in verse 8 when he says, And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. 
He explains in verse 15 saying, as for that in good soil, they are those who hearing the word hold it fast in an honest and good heart. You notice there's two responses to, um, uh, of the responsive heart. First of all, they hold fast to the word of God. There is a pursuit of the word of God. They embrace the word when they hear it. He says they hold fast with an honest heart. They don't dodge it, right? They don't minimize it. They don't constantly apply it to other people. They're honest about their own needs. They hold fast, he says. They, they grip hold of it. You ought to listen to the Word of God with all your might. You can't listen to the Word of God like you watch television. You will fail. It is a discipline. It is a pursuit. It is a grasping. You cannot coast in worship. You must focus in. You should focus in on the songs that are sung and the prayers that are offered and the scripture that is read and certainly the the sermon that is proclaimed. You need to come here, not only here, but Sunday school and your private devotional times and whenever the word is open to go hard after God. To grasp the word, to welcome it like a long lost friend. Oh, there you are. I've been waiting for you. To snatch it up like a hundred dollar bill lying on the ground. To seize it like a beggar who has finally found bread. Bread that will give them life. To cherish it. To seek after it. And yet so many just pat it on the head like a dog in the corner. That's nice. Now go over there. Christ says they hold fast to it. And when you hold fast, you know what happens? It changes you. It transforms you into the image of Jesus. That's what he means when he says there at the end of verse 15, that they bear fruit. The goal of hearing the word of God is certainly not your entertainment or even uh, providing you with information. It is your transformation. He says they bear fruit a hundredfold, which is unheard of. What Christ wants from his hearers is fruitfulness. He wants fruit. This is why you sow seed, right? Why does anyone sow seed? Because they want the fruit. This is why Christ is proclaiming His truth, because He wants the fruit in your life. And we saw this last week. Do you remember, why does Christ forgive people? Remember? Why does He offer forgiveness? So that you might love Him. Remember the woman? That, that He who is forgiven much loves much. And what is, what is love but a fruit? Right? The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. He wants that fruit. He's longing for that. He wants us to be changed. And I think so many people listen to the Word of God, and they do so week after week, and they, they feel compelled, and they feel engaged, and they think, you know, man, next time I'm really going to change. You know, I, I'm, I'm going to get to that next time. And I think week after week, Jesus is pleading with you. He's like, come on. I mean, you've been dealing with this for 10 years. I have so much more for you. I have life for you, abundance, joy, peace. When are you going to follow me? When are you going to surrender? When are you going to give it to me all? And we say, well, I'll do so next time. And I'll tell you, my brothers and sisters, that is devastating to your heart. And it is incredibly dangerous. Take care how you hear he wants fruitfulness from our life are you bearing fruit for the glory of christ and for your great gain now notice the caveat notice the the prepositional phrase he says bear fruit see this with what patience and so we need to balance don't it's not going to happen overnight we don't we don't sow in the morning and we're not and eating cucumbers in the afternoon It, it takes fertilization and watering and it takes time and sunlight to grow doesn't it 
right? And so we're not going to be transformed by a, often by a single encounter with the Word of God. It's going to happen over years and, and weeks of hearing and sitting under the Word of God. But it will change us. We will bear fruit. This is what happens when the seed is sown, when the Word is heard, right? Faith comes by, what is it? Hearing. And hearing the Word of Christ. This is why we focus here at Hamilton Baptist Church on the Word. This is why I spend 15 to 20 hours each week writing a sermon and other Bible studies and Sunday school classes and discipleship relationships. And this is why people are praying this very moment. Right now, people are praying for the Word. It's why we gather and pray beforehand. It's because we believe that the Word transforms life. The Word bears fruit. The Word will, f- will work in our relationships and work in our life and work in our heart and, and, and work in our world if the Word of God is sown. We must have the word sown, otherwise we will not reap a harvest, which I think should tell you, you're not only a soil in this passage, you all are also a sower, aren't you? Right? Because if Christ is going to bear fruit, people have to be out sowing seed. You have to be speaking of the Lord, speaking of the kingdom of God. I wonder if you'll do that on Tuesday when you walk into work and everybody's talking about their holiday weekend. And what did you do this weekend? What did you do this weekend? I wonder if you'll, you'll have a word of Christ. You know what I did? I, I considered how to respond to the word of God and, and am I responding properly? And I wonder if you'll be able to talk about him and sow seed. I think this parable is designed to wake us up. I think you, my friends, would do well to take accounting of your life as we consider God's word. And I think if we're probably honest, we look at the story and we realize, well, yeah, I think I'm, I'm, I got fertile soil in there, but I have some thorns as well. And I got some stones as well. And I don't want to press this parable too far, but I, I would suggest to you that the soil's job is not to pull out thorns and till the soil from the rocks. It is to receive the seed. And I imagine if you would call out to God even now, God, the one who comes, and say, I, God, I, I want your word. I want you. I want to grow. But I got some stuff in my life and I need help. I wonder if he would come right now by the power of the Holy Spirit and begin to give you freedom over that sin. To give you discipline in your life that you've been longing for for years and years. If you would come to him, I think he would say, what is taking you so long? I'd be happy to pull out the thorns. I'd be happy to, to, to take out the stone. After all, I, I took your thorns and put them on my brow, and I took your stone, and I was buried underneath it. That's what I've come to do. I've come to transform you through my word. In fact, I find it fascinating that he identifies the word of God not as like a hammer or a, or a fire, but as a seed. Right? A seed, we think, well, a seed is weak. I mean, you don't drop a seed and say it bombs away. Right? A seed, I mean, what power is in a seed? Oh, but seed is so incredibly powerful, isn't it? I mean, a sword may kill his enemies and a fire destroy opposition, but there's power in a seed. There's a graveyard in Italy, centuries old, and many tourists will go to there, and there is once a, a king or a prince buried under an enormously thick slab of marble, and yet somehow an acorn fell down in that grave. And you can go to this very day and you can see that this oak tree did what a team of horses and an army of men could not do. It split that slab in two. And out grows this massive oak tree with the stone rolled off on one side and another. That's the power of the Word of God. 
It's the power of the seed that could take root in your life and begin to transform you. In fact, you know, Jesus not only likened his word to a seed, but he also likened himself to a seed, didn't he? That Jesus also didn't come like a hammer or fire, but he came as a seed. A seed that has great power if it is buried in the ground. You know, in John chapter 12, Jesus said, unless a seed falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. If it dies, it bears much fruit. And our Lord, knowing that he would face infinite suffering and divine abandonment and holy judgment, walked into a garden. And he was under such anxiety. The creator of all things, the eternal son of God, began to to bleed out of his pores. And he looked to heaven and he said, Father, is there any other way? And heaven's answer was no. There is no other way. You must die. You must go into the ground and die. And he did And because he did, I could tell you based upon the authority of the word, I don't care how thick that marble slab is over your heart. He could snap it in two. I don't care how addicted you are. I don't care how messed your life is is up. I don't care how how messed up your self-image or all the problems you have. Or Stephen, you don't know me. You don't know what goes on in my darkness. I don't care what goes on in your darkness. Christ has the power to fix your life if you would just submit to him. If you would just bow your knee and say, okay, I'm finally, I'm in. I surrender it all. I give it to you. He will tra- it won't come overnight, but he will transform your life. He is the seed that has gone into the ground that can break any slab into. And he's done that for many of us, hasn't he? Some of you know that freedom. Some of you have experienced that work. Many of us have, haven't we? I would like to celebrate that work with you as we come before this table. Celebrate what Christ has done. Can you, as you hold the elements as they're passed in a moment, can you not in your heart just rejoice in the transformation and the victory that Christ has done in your life because you have rightly heard the word of God? For others of you, you need to receive Christ. For you need to bow to him. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You can do this very moment. Even while I'm speaking right now, you can be calling out to God. Stop listening to me and start speaking to God. God, save me. Save me. And he will for all eternity. I invite you to come. In fact, why don't we do this? Why don't we just have a moment of silent prayer? Perhaps there's one in their heart right now that is feeling God call them. The Holy Spirit is working in their life that they might come. Let us pray together. Father, I do ask that you would work. Your, your word is powerful. There are people here that need to repent. There are people here who, who need to begin to pursue you and stop being lazy. Not, not out of legalism, not out of demands, but because joy and life is found in Christ. And there are people here, I have no doubt, Father, that continue to refuse to come to you. Maybe even now, Father, you're working in them. Will you cause them to call out to you? Perhaps, my friend, you would even pray something like this to God. 
God in heaven, I'm sorry for my sin. I'm sorry for my rebellion. I'm sorry that I've lived my own way. I'm sorry that I've pushed you away time and again. Today I come. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died upon the cross to pay my penalty. I believe he rose from the dead. I believe there is no other hope other than faith in him, and I place it all in him right now. If you would pray something like that and mean it in your heart, God would transform your life. He would begin a work of transformation even now. And Father, as we come to this supper meal, will you please help us to rejoice in the work of Christ our Lord and for what he has done for us all. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we come to the meal, I'd like to invite the deacons to come forward. And I'm going to give you, as the Bible instructs us, a moment to examine your own life that we might eat this meal together with clean conscience, with a clean conscience, coming to the Lord, repenting of our sin, not as perfect people, but as repentant people. The Bible says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink the cup. And so I want you to examine yourself as the Bible instructs us. But one way in which we can do that is, is we're going to remember the covenant in which we have made as we entered into Hamilton Baptist Church. And I'm going to put that on the screen, and I'm just simply going to read a section of it. We're not going to read the whole thing. If you guys will put that on the screen for me, that would be great. And I want you to, to think about this as I'm reading it, especially the members of this church. These are your vows you have made to one another. And perhaps God would reveal in your own heart areas in which you need to grow, that you may speak to him about it, even as we prepare our lives and our hearts for the Lord's Supper. We have vowed together that together we will spur one another on to love and good deeds. We will meet with one another consistently, pray for one another regularly, and serve one another selflessly. We will share each other's joys, bear each other's burdens, and aid each other in sickness and distress. We will edify one another with our speech and encourage one another with our example. We will be slow to take offense and ready to seek reconciliation. We will humbly and gently confront one another willingly receive correction, and eagerly work for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We will give cheerfully and generously to the support of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel through all nations. Will you pray silently to our Lord as you search your heart that you might repent of any sin he might reveal to you? Let us pray together.